And, and we will go live. Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this afternoon from a rare sunny day here in South Central British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our investigative series into the actual science behind the Earth's ever-changing climate and continue to provide clear evidence to counter the bogus mainstream alarmist narrative. Today, we'll be taking a close look at the proverbial poster child of the climate alarmists, the polar bear. Joining us is Dr. Susan Crockford, a professional zoologist with a PhD and more than 40 years of experience in her field. Dr. Crockford earned her undergraduate degree in zoology at the University of British Columbia and was an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria for 15 years from 2004 until 2019. Late in the spring of 2019, after the publication of her scientific paper, which contradicted the mainstream propaganda of declining polar bear abundance, her university department suddenly, and without stating a cause, refused to renew her unpaid adjunct professorship status. Polar bear evolution is one of Dr. Crawford's professional interests. Her work includes studies on the Holocene history and evolution of Arctic animals. She's a specialist with a practical ability to identify the broken and or digested bones of a wide variety of animals, including fish, reptiles, amphibians, birds, terrestrial mammals, and marine mammals. Dr. Crockford has an extensive list of publications, both scientific journals and books. She also regularly writes her own science blog at polarbearscience.com. Dr. Crockford, it's a privilege to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. You're welcome, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and after some technical difficulties, we're, uh, we're finally rolling tape. So uh, let's begin, if we may, today on a more personal note, if you could give the listeners a, a bit of an idea about who the young Dr. Crockford was and what motivated that young person to pursue the field of zoology. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, one of the things that I remember um, from my childhood is um, taking a mouse away from the cat and trying to do a dissection with a butter knife. And my mother came across me trying to do this dissection and told me I needed a better knife and went to the kitchen and got me a better knife. So I think that was my start where I clearly was interested in how things looked on the inside. And really then all of our family was quite interested in evolution just as a topic of conversation. Um, it, it was our conversation around the dinner table. And we also went on several expeditions to the shores of Lake Erie to hunt for fossils. And so that what those things really got me going, I think, in the in those interests. Interesting. So you grew up back east then in Canada? Yeah, I was born in Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and like half of Toronto, you've migrated out to BC. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Can't can't blame you. So, and then how did you become interested in polar bears, and and what has kept you interested and engaged with their research in face of such growing controversy and personal hardship? Well, I I I really have always been interested in polar bears, and one of the things uh, that got me going, I think, was a book that my mother bought that was called People and Places. And I was maybe about eight years old, but that particular book had uh, a section on the Inuit and talking then about their relationship with their sled dogs and also the fact that there were these polar bears there. And, and that got me intrigued about the Arctic. And so I read a lot of books as a child about the Arctic, Farley Mowat's um, books, about wolves and about sled dogs. And uh, so eventually I 
badgered my father long enough um, that he relented and bought me an Alaskan Malamute. And so that was my that was my introduction, even though it's you know ever so tangential to the Arctic, of of having this um, Arctic sled breed um, to deal with and to think about to think about what were the differences and similarities between them and wolves, um, and I was you know eleven years old at the time, so that really led into when I started into my university uh, career of thinking about how a wolf actually turns into a dog. And so I was thinking about those concepts and what that meant. Um, and because of my interest in polar bears just in general, um, I began thinking about the transformation of a brown bear to a polar bear as kind of a parallel system of, you know, a wolf to dog versus brown bear to polar bear. And so I, I ended up thinking about those two systems in evolution as something that was potentially really important to science. Mm, very good. And did that dog escape dissection via butter knife? He did indeed. However, he his skeleton is a part of our collection at the university oh, and he continues to be extremely useful because he is a wolf sized dog. And it's always useful to have that, to show people the difference between a wolf and a dog that's as big as a wolf. And one of the biggest um, differences that's obvious is the size of their teeth. Mm. Um, like his, his, his skull is as big as a female wolf but his teeth are almost half the size. Uh, interesting. And so obviously yeah. an adaptation moving away from the wild. Yes. Uh, interesting. And then when did you become an outspoken critic of the mainstream climate alarmist narrative? And was there an aha moment that predicated this move? Well, I mean, uh, the whole climate change thing um, didn't really interest me. I mean, I could, it was there in the background and I always thought, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a very reasonable argument to me, but I never really paid much attention to it. I thought, you know, it's eventually going to go away. Um, but then I discovered that there was this petition to list polar bears um, in the U.S. on the endangered species list. And um, I was asked as a member of the marine mammal science community to review a document that was being uh, presented to Congress to inform them about polar bear biology. It was essentially, it was supposed to be, um, you know, a background information document. And so I spent some time reviewing that and suggesting additions to it. And really it went from a three-page document without a map to an 11-page document with a map. And they included just about every recommendation that I made. And that made me aware that there was um, a place for, for me, for my interest and my expertise in this particular debate. Interesting, interesting. And, and how long ago was that? That, there was, that, that? was uh, 2007. Okay, so right around the um, uh, Inconvenient Truth nonsense movie yes, that came out. exactly, right. exactly. Right. 
Right. Well, so let's let's dig into some science then for today's discussion and uh, maybe some general knowledge about polar bears for the listeners. And, and maybe let's begin with their history and the revolution since we've sort of been on that uh, topic. Uh, and I understand that polar bear genetics began to diverge from their grizzly or brown bear ancestors some 400,000 years ago. Um, give, give us some more details here on this on this subject, if you would. Well, it is it has been pretty obvious to biologists for quite a while that um, polar bears um, descended from brown bears. Um, but the details on when and where and how have been really elusive. Now, we know that the oldest brown bear fossils um, are only about 660,000 years old. And those oldest fossils um, are found in China. So it seems reasonable that polar bears can't be very much older than that if they, if they uh, descended from brown bears. So my feeling is that that really puts a cap on it because we do know that the bear fossil record is, it's not perfect, but it is better than many other um, animals that we have. Um, and there's been more than a dozen um, genetics papers that have really explored um, how how old the polar bear is and what's happened in that respect. And almost every single one of them has come up with a different answer. And so it's, I'm actually right now in the process of writing a book about polar bear evolution and where I'm just trying to lay down, all, lay out all of those things, look at all of the competing arguments and and see if I can come up with uh, a plausible scenario um, about how this all came about. But I think, as you said, you know, as a, uh, for now, using the 400,000 year timeframe um, is seems reasonable at the moment. Okay, okay. And before we get into some other information here, uh, maybe you could give us some idea about the bear's distribution and their general biology and habitat requirements. Well, the, the polar bear is distributed um, throughout the Arctic in areas where there is ice in the winter and in the spring. There are a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, um, that's the case. And that means that that includes all of Hudson Bay it includes um, the ice that comes down the Labrador coast to Northern um, Newfoundland uh, and also in the Bering Sea. So we've got um, an animal that is adapted to being completely carnivorous. Um, it's the only bear that is, um, has that attribute and they are dependent on the sea ice because they use the sea ice as a platform to hunt seals. Um, the, the most important seal species for them is the ring seal, which is actually quite a small uh, seal. It's about got the body of about the same size as a Labrador retriever. Um, but um, there are lots of these ring seals and they're fairly widely distributed. And there is also a much larger bearded seal that's also distributed throughout um, the polar bear range. Um, and the bears can actually live their entire lives out on the sea ice. 
So they really don't, there's nothing that really requires them to come to land um, that they, they can and do many, many of them do still um, live their entire lives out on the sea ice. But what they do are they're quite dependent on the newborn seals that are born every spring. So that about two thirds of their entire calories that they consume for a year um, are taken in that the spring months of April and May. That's interesting. And so obviously just to unpack a couple of things, uh, if they're, if they can spend their entire life on the ice, I mean, that's obviously uh, one of the reasons why they have their scientific name of Maritimus. Yes. Um, and that, that's interesting. It's unlike uh, all the other bears, obviously. And um, so we're talking about a circumpolar species. So we're, we're, they're going to be in Northern China, Northern Russia, uh, the Northern European nations, and of course, Northern Canada. Yeah, well, not Northern China, but definitely Northern Russia. And um, so, yes, so they're, they're widely distributed. Um, and what was that popped up to my, into my mind? Um, that there are certain places within their distribution, such as Hudson Bay, for example, where the sea ice, they live year, there year round. And in that area, the sea ice uh, melts completely during the summer. So in that location and a few others um, where the ice melts completely in the summer, they do come to land and, and spend some time on the land. Um, but in other, other areas in the central Arctic, they, many of them don't don't even do that. Mm, interesting. So given the, the, the polar bears 400,000 some odd years of history as a species, um, I would imagine that this is a very highly resilient and adaptable animal, uh, given the environmental conditions that this species has endured over its 400,000 years. Well, absolutely. And, and um, the, there are some people who are trying to give the impression that the Arctic is, should be a stable place to live. But in fact, throughout history, and we don't even have to go back very far, we only have to go back 10,000 years to see that the, um, that the ice in the Arctic has been quite variable over that time period. And so polar bears have had to adapt or adjust to those changing conditions. And if they didn't have that ability, they would not have survived as a species. Yes, yes. And I you know there's a, a bunch of uh, very good graphs showing um, the temperature swings. And of course, these are the, the interglacials. Uh, and over the last 400,000 years or so, um, I see five or six periods of time where we have situations which are similar to today. Um, and then the rest of that long history. I mean, we were in some form of an ice age where uh, I'm not really sure where these bears would have been. They certainly wouldn't have been uh, standing on top of two miles of ice trying to hunt seals. Well, no, and I think that's the point and that for all of the concern about warming, uh, about how bears would have survived a warming world, um, it really looks to me when you look closely that um, glacial conditions like we had during the, the last ice age um, was probably more stressful for bears and seals than an interglacial was. And that's because, be because of that intense cold, the whole Arctic basin became you know, so thick with ice that no animal could live there. So bears and seals got pushed out into the edges 
And, and so the populations became completely separated into an Atlantic and a Pacific um, population. And they, the, all, the only place that they could live was in the seasonal ice that was along the edges of North America and Europe. And so they really had much less habitat during the glacial periods than they actually did during interglacials. Um, so, you know, that's something to keep in mind that too much ice for them could, could be um, a detrimental. Um, for sure. And, and, and at, during those glacial periods, I mean, I would imagine we would have had polar bears marching around uh, down in, in your region around Victoria. Uh, at the, that would have been where the ice margins were and, and the rest of the area moving north would have been a, a frozen wasteland. Well, we certainly know that there's um, that there were ring seals. So the prey of polar bears came down uh, as, at least as far as southeast Alaska. And so if the ring seals were there, it's very likely that the that polar bears were there as well. We just don't have any real evidence for that. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that I, I, I wrote a paper that just came out last month um, about ancient polar bear remains around the world. And where I just looked at the fossils, the distribution of fossil um, polar bear remains and archeological remains and what's interesting is that you in, as this last um, ice age ended about 8,000 years ago when things warmed up and the ice started to recede in the Arctic, um, there was a population of bears um, at the edge um, of the Russian coast in the East Siberian Sea um, where um, ancient people there were hunting them. So we have the hunted remains of those bears that are 8,000 years old, and then a few fossil remains from the Svalbard Peninsula, which is um, just north of Norway, and a couple of fossils there that are about the same age. Okay. So it wasn't until about 8,000 years ago that conditions warmed up enough for polar bears to re-enter the Arctic. That's interesting, which is which, of course, is something I think that a lot of people don't understand the severity of the impact on this continent from the last ice age. I mean, the and when that ice receded, uh, you know, from 48th, 47th parallel north, this was a gravel wasteland, which took probably thousands of years to reestablish some level of ecosystem function. Um, and, and I would imagine that the the populations of whatever animals, you know, took a long time, again, probably hundreds or thousands of years uh, to reestablish. Well, I don't think it took that long, really, but it would have taken, you know, it took um, something like if, if the bears weren't into the um, Chukchi Sea um, in the Pacific side until around 8,000 years ago, um, it means that it took them several thousand years to get reestablished. And, you know, so I think that's the thing is that they're used to this ebb and flow of the ice and both ring seals and polar bears um, have had to be adaptable to those kinds of changes. And they just move with the ice. When it moves south, they move with it. When it goes north again, they follow it back. And that's the way that their life is. Interesting. And then, of course, the Younger Dryas, which is an interesting period of time in our 
in somewhat recent history. Um, and we always hear the, the alarmists bleating about unprecedented changes. And of course, during the Younger Dryas, we had 10 to 15 degree temperature shifts, perhaps within a decade. Um, so we, we've definitely seen greater uh, changes in the past. Uh, so did these present changes that we may or may not be experiencing, do they concern you in terms of polar bear survival? Well, from what I've seen so far, I really haven't seen evidence that the bears are not capable of adjusting to this. I mean, we may see some bears dying in some location, um, but we haven't seen any kind of dramatic population decline um, of the kind of um, realm that, that we have been told to expect. We see, in, for, for example, in the area around Svalbard, north of Norway they, that I mentioned, the, uh, uh, there has definitely been less um, ice there during the summer and sometimes in the early winter, and especially on the west coast. And that's been a problem for some polar bears that had traditionally made um, maternity dens in that area. And what they've done is just shifted further east to an area called Friends Joseph Land in Russia, um, where the ice is more persistent and, it, and it's um, something that they can count on a little bit better. And it's, you know, there, there has been traditionally, even before uh, these ice changes happened, there was some movement between those two areas. And now it was just a bigger shift. So, um, they know what to do, most of them, um, to respond to these kinds of changes. Yes. And do we have enough resolution in, in either the fossil or archaeological record to make uh, estimations in terms of population abundance during uh, the, the, the previous climate optima or our little ice ages like the Sporer or Maunder Minimum? No, unfortunately, we don't. There really isn't because the polar bear, uh, the polar bear fossils, there's only actually like six. Okay. So <laughs> and, and so is, you know, it's because what happens is they usually die on the ice and then if the bones sink to the bottom. And so, you know, they have a particularly poor fossil record. And as far as archeological remain, remains go, um, the, what you, what you get is so dependent on the bone actually surviving in the soil, but it also depends on what the people are doing. Are they hunting? Are they deliberately hunting bears or are they just, you know, killing bears that give them problems? And, you know, so it really depends on the particular interaction with the people involved. Okay. Okay. And certainly, let's say from your, your knowledge uh, biologically, uh, the times where we had a warming trend, where we have greater degrees of ice-free conditions, I would imagine that those ecosystems became more productive and less productive. And over a period of time, the abundance of food would have increased uh, right from the phytoplankton levels moving upward. Uh, con conversely, when we enter a cold period, less solar insulation, there's less energy in there, there's probably less food. Would, th would that be a correct uh, understanding? Well, it's, that seems to be what, what is happening because there's definitely um, the biologists are picking up on the greater amounts of phytoplankton um, in areas of the Arctic where there's less ice in the summer. And despite that, that um, reduced 
ice in summer, the bears seem to be doing very well. So that suggests there's lots of phytoplankton for the fish to eat. If there's lots of fish, there's lots of fish for the seals to eat. If the seals are nice and fat and reproducing well, it means there's lots of food for polar bears. So um, at, at this point, at least, that seems to be the case, that it's, it's actually uh, a benefit rather than a detriment. Right. And I, I looking through your uh, your your blog site there, um, you have a number of pictures of some truly immense bears. I mean, I guess some of these adult males are approaching 2000 pounds. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. No. And they can. And that's they they just eat and eat their uh, they really have a drive um, to eat as much as they can. And they do most of that feeding, as I said, in the spring. Um, but biologists are actually have speculated now that in fact these bears can actually live on fat alone and that they don't actually need any kind of protein or anything because the the biggest males if there's lots of seals around they just come and strip the fat off the seals and that's all they eat interesting and but it's one of the reasons why they can be so much trouble in communities because it doesn't even matter how fat they are they're still driven to keep eating because the fatter they are, the more secure they are um, in times, the times of year when it's um, difficult to hunt. Interesting. And certainly I've seen that firsthand with um, some fat overfed black bears feasting on salmon in the Queen Charlotte Islands, where they'll strip the, strip the skin, munch it, take a bite out of the, uh, the head, eating the brain. And if, if it's a female, they'll gorge themselves on the eggs and, the, and they'll cast the carcass into the, the, the trees and go back and get another one. Yeah. And, uh, and it really is, they've got such a drive for fat um, that they also, you know, really are attracted to a lot of the things that are associated with human communities, things that you wouldn't think of, antifreeze, you know, any kind of oils and lubricants, vinyl, they chew the vinyl seats off snowmobiles because it's made from oil. And I think they can just, they smell it. And so they'll chew up snowmobile seats, they'll chew up um, vinyl hoses and those kinds of things. So they can really, even if they're not attacking people, they can do a lot of damage in a community while they're, you know, looking around for things to eat. Well, it's like a 2000 pound raccoon. It's uh, <laughs> something like that for sure. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. There's, there's one photo here uh, on your, on your, um, your blog site there of sort of, I guess, a stained up bear. It's probably urine or, or, or dirt and his belly is touching the ground. I mean, so it, in these well-fed bears, what, what fat percentage uh, would we estimate they have or, or, or do, do we have that knowledge? Oh gosh. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, over 50% I would think oh, by wow. weight okay. but you know it's uh they certainly do they can put on there was one picture um that was clear um in one of the journal articles so it was a female bear that was weighed in the fall at about 200 pounds and they captured her the following summer and she weighed 900 pounds. Yeah, I remember so she that. put on 700 pounds over eight months. Yeah, that's unreal. So, yeah. And she was so fat, she could hardly walk. 
And they so couldn't, they, they tried to put a collar on her and it wouldn't fit around. So they had to put a, a little satellite dish on her head like she was a seal. Oh God. And so, I mean, obviously the, these photos that we're seeing of these emaciated bears, I mean, th these are one-offs of, of, of injured bear or an elderly sick bear. Uh, in general, your opinion would be that most of these bears seem to be well-fed and well-nourished and, and in healthy condition. Well, that's right. And, you know, the thing is that um, the, the leading cause of death for polar bears is starvation. It's, you know, they don't have any natural predators. And so starvation is how they die. And if they get sick or injured, or if they're young bears that are too inexperienced that they can't get enough food for themselves, um, then they can find themselves not eating enough during the spring to survive. And, and they will succumb. And my point has been that, you know, we see these isolated photos of these emaciated bears. And my point is that if it was truly something to do with climate change, uh, we would be seeing dozens of bears in that condition, not just one. Right, right. And then, and then to reiterate a point that we brought up and just covered quickly, uh, with this two-thirds of their caloric intake taking place in, I believe it was April and May in the springtime. Uh, yeah. And this is this is when the the seals are giving birth and the the the, the pups are out on the ice while the mothers are feeding and the, it's basically little little snacks that the polar bears can come and uh, chew on as as they as they patrol the sea ice. Um, so the these bears then, unlike our terrestrial bears, which have a singular period where they're fasting, which is over winter. Um, the polar bears may actually have two periods, one when they're denning over winter, plus one in the summer when there may, may or may not be sea ice. That's right. And, that, and it is one of the, um, the points that, you know, all of this talk about the potential demise of polar bears because of global warming is an assumption that summer ice is essential for their survival, when in fact, most bears, even if they're out on the ice, they don't actually um, do very much hunting. Or if they're hunting, they're not, not very often successful. And the reason that that's so is that because it's because of what the seals are doing. So the, the newborn seals that survive the initial predation by the bears in the spring, those bears or those seals go off into the open ocean to feed. So they don't hang around near the ice. The only seals that are hanging around um, on the ice are adults and sub-adults. But those are seals that have already learned that bears are dangerous. And so they're watching out for them. And so it's very difficult for the bears to actually catch any of those seals during the summer. They might get lucky, but really um, the odds are against them. And then in the winter, between the darkness and the cold, then they're unlikely to, to capture any seals there. I mean, they, they keep hunting, they keep looking, but they're very seldom likely to be successful. So that almost all bears are at their lowest weight at the beginning of spring. That's when they're the skinniest. And that's when they are the most dangerous, for example, coming into communities because they really are desperately hungry at that point. Which is the same for grizzly bears. I mean, when they emerge from their den, anything that's smaller than them that'll fit in their mouth is, is uh, on the menu. I, I guess, yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that brings us up then to the, the modern controversy surrounding polar bear abundance. Uh, and I understand that, that a group of climate alarmists led by former USGS biologist Stephen Anstrup uh, and supported by none other than uh, cartoon scientist Michael Mann uh, publicized their catastrophic fear mongering model results indicating a potential polar bear population collapse uh, due to diminishing summer sea ice. Um, can you shed some light on this situation for us? And, and I understand that this group also published a defamatory paper uh, denouncing your work, um, which essentially amounted to um, trying to silence scientific criticism. Yeah, well, really what happened was that um, they, they really wanted to get the bears on the endangered species list. And it's hard to understand the, the reasoning for that, but part of it is that it really does free up um, research funds for them. And it makes, you know, a, Arctic research is expensive. And so if, they're, if they have the bears on the endangered species list, there's more research funds for them. So in 2007, um, Stephen Amstrup put together a, a, mo a model um, that, what it did was it included some assumptions and opinions on his part on how the bears would react to about 40% less ice than there had been in 1979. So their paper that described all these horrific things that it was going to lead to a, a decline of two thirds of the um, world's population of bears and that 10 of the 19 subpopulations were going to disappear entirely, their paper came out in September. Well, by August, the sea ice had already declined to a level that they, they predicted wouldn't even happen until 2050. So it had already dropped to that level. And in fact, it really hasn't recovered. It's gone up and down and up and down. So 2007 was um, a quite major low. And then there was another big drop in 2012. And it's been a bit higher than that since then. But really it's been fairly, um, no, no, no further declining trend, but not increasing either. And my point was that, you know, we now have 10 years worth of data to show that, in fact, their prediction that if this sea ice declined to those levels and stayed that way for 10 years, that two thirds of the polar bears would be gone, that that prediction um, was just wrong. And I was able to demonstrate that and they didn't like it very much. Um, and now we're, we're talking summer sea ice here. Exactly. Yeah. Then okay. that's the that's the amount that is uh, the average for September is the metric that they use. Okay. And and what are the trends in terms of uh, either winter or spring ice? Well, you've got um, the there is a, a small decline in the spring ice, um, but it's really nothing very major. And in fact, none of the models that I've seen the climate models predict that it's going to be anything catastrophic. It's just, it's gonna be this very slight decline, but it's the summer ice that, that has, uh, um, has taken this big dip. 
And that's why they're focused on it, because that's the one that will give them the most dramatic story. And what they're doing is they included this um, assumption in their models that um, summer ice was essential for the bears to be feeding, when in fact, they know that that's not the case. They know from, and I, because I learned it from their papers, so I know they know it. You know, that's how I learned about the polar bear biology is from reading their papers. So if they knew that enough to write it in their papers, then they knew it enough to include in these models and they did not. So um, that, that has been a frustration because, you know, it's, uh, it, it calls into account their, their own motives in putting together um, these kinds of models that are, are really are bound to fail and they are now denying, they are the ones denying that they're, that this model has failed. And of course, we do have evidence of, uh, I guess, go back to the explorer days and even back to the 1600s, where people were exploring those northern regions where we had far greater amounts of ice and far less amounts of ice. And that would go to uh, even, even some of the modern exploration with um, uh, submarines and icebreakers. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and that's the thing is that um, it's, and the ice is difficult to measure. I mean, one of the things I, I learned putting together that um, little paper for the Library of Congress um, was that, you know, they have to estimate um, the thickness of ice from satellites. Now, before the satellite era, they did it from submarines by sort of pinging upwards to see how thick it was. And now they do it downwards from the satellites. But it's still, um, it's notoriously inaccurate, especially in at the time that is most critical. And that is the early summer. So all at the time when the ice is melting and creating what they call melt ponds, so water floating on top of the ice, that makes it difficult for the satellites to measure exactly how much ice is there. And so, you know, there, there are discrepancies. I mean, they put out these sea ice maps as if they're, you know, ab, an absolute. But in fact, especially at, at about this time of year in June and July, those, those maps can be 20% wrong. And they know that they know that, but you know, when they're talking to journalists and whatnot, they actually don't acknowledge um, that little problem. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, journalists these days don't ask those questions. Exactly. So, if if we look back over, let's say, the last hundred years, what was the primary cause then of of the pop, uh, polar bear population declines, and uh, you know, why have they rebounded to the levels that we're at presently? Well, there was this um, huge increase in um, in hunting that took place. There was an initial overhunting that took place in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was primarily whalers, whalers who had run out of whales. And so they turned to polar bears to supplement their income. And so they took a horrific number of uh, polar bears in just in the 30 years between 1880 and 1910. Um, and then uh, after the First World War, there was another surge again, um, because the Arctic became more accessible. There were planes, you know, there were uh, no skidoos didn't come in until the 60s, I don't think, but there were planes. 
and uh, people, there was no constraints on hunting and um, they were hunted to such a de degree that um, many of the countries that have polar bears in them became to be concerned. Russia was the first. Russia actually had their first ban on polar bears in 1958. And then there was concern in the 1960s and in 1973, there was actually a formal international treaty put together to protect the bears from overhunting. Interesting. And, and is, is what's the status then today of, of the polar bear hunting? Well, so the, in, in a number of countries, there is no hunting allowed at all in, in Norway, in this area of Svalbard, for example. Um, and, and technically speaking, in most of Russia, it's not allowed. Um, but it is allowed in Canada and the US and some parts of Russia for indigenous peoples who, who uh, traditionally hunt polar bears uh, for their livelihood. So there is much reduced hunting and there is um, uh, definitely the hunting is tightly managed and controlled in areas where it is allowed. And so uh, today then we, are we seeing the indigenous groups hunting the bears for, I guess, food or, or their, their furs for their own use, or are they guiding um, other folks uh, on hunts? Well, they do both. And my understanding is that, for example, that um, what will happen is that, so they, you hunt by tags, you need um, a tag to, to take a bear. Um, so a community, for example, might get five tags. And so what they could do is someone in the community could take that tag and hunt for himself or his community and then you know divvy up the meat and the and the skin and whatever to his community or it could be given to a hunter who would guide sell that tag to someone from outside who would come in my understanding is that it, usually those tags go for something in the range of $50,000 so a hunter coming in has to pay that $50,000. He also has to pay the guide, which you know could be 20 or $30,000. Then they have to play, pay for all of the equipment, all of these supplies. And in general, they might take back the skull and the skin. They usually leave the meat behind for the community. But the essential thing is that a hunter who is hunting for his community has all year to use his tag. So he can hunt a bear anytime in that whole year. He has a whole year to use it. Once he sold that tag to an outsider, that tag can only be used by that outsider for, for the time that he is in the Arctic, which might be what, two weeks? If he doesn't get a bear, that tag is gone. Okay. It's, a, it's off the table. So um, in fact, that particular system of managing the outside hunting um, is probably results in fewer bears killed than it does in more bears killed than if it's only going to the community for their use. Simply because but, of the time spent. Exactly, because they have such a limited time. And if they, if they don't find a bear, they, they can't get it. And you know, really, and the other aspect of it is that it's so important to those Arctic communities. I mean, I don't, few people realize how desperately expensive it is to live in the Arctic and um, that 
this cash that comes in wouldn't go just to that hunter. It would go to the whole community to support them. Um, and that it, it's a really critical um, income generation for them. Certainly. And, and we're talking, I mean, some of these communities may be several hundred people or less. Uh, they're certainly not metropolises of, you know, tens of thousands of people. And so, you know, 50 or $100,000 coming into a community like that is, is a considerable amount of money. Exactly. Exactly. Do we, and do we have an idea of what the harvest levels are, let's say, in, in Canada? I mean, how many bears are being hunted or how many ah, times? Being- I, I don't pay that much attention to it, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I believe it's in the realm of six to 700 a year wow. over the whole area. Um, but um, that is considerably less than what was taken in the years before. And when you keep in mind that, you know, other areas in the Arctic don't allow any hunting whatsoever. So they can obviously move out of areas where, or, or exactly, over, yeah. overpredated. And so what, what, what are our present population estimates and what is what the trend? Are we, are we increasing, declining? Where are we at? Well, that's where the big argument is, right? And that um, the official line is that there is something around 26,000 bears um, and these conservation biologists would like us to believe that once we started protecting them from overhunting, that the bear numbers went up and then have leveled off and have stopped increasing um, because of changes in sea ice. But I would argue that they they are really trying to um, manipulate the figures and and that the the true figure is probably somewhere around 39,000 um, if you add up the numbers in of recently surveyed populations it comes out to a little over 30,000 so they would argue 26,000 if you add add up what has been um counted recently, you, you really get to a little over 30,000. But, but that is, in fact, ignoring large areas of um, Russia, where they just pretend there, is, there are no bears at all. Well, they know there's no bears, but they don't include them in any of these counts. Or they include such a lowball number that it's not even um, plausible that, that that's what's going on. So, I mean, there, there's some games going on here in, in what they are considering to be um, uh, legitimate counts in all of this. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I've, um, on my blog, I'm pushing, I, I push back a bit on this because, you know, it really, they, their job, their job has been to count polar bears from the time that that international treaty came into effect. It was one of the um, mandates that was on the treaty was to get a, a, a good count of the polar bear numbers. And it's been 50 years now, and we're still arguing about, you know, whether this is scientific enough. You know, is this a guess? Well, you know, um, I don't know where it's going to go from there. Right, 
Right. And so the, the, essentially the, the alarmists are wanting us to believe that there's been a no increase since the 1973 moratorium on hunting. Uh, and we have some evidence to show that the the bears in certain regions are actually seeming to be doing quite well, where mothers are having triplet cub litters. Um, and of course, you know, just we, as we talked about earlier, we're seeing some very, very healthy bears, uh, which would be contrary to the alarmist viewpoint that if we are seeing this diminishing ice, uh, that, you know, bears are suffering and that their population would be declining. Exactly. Well, you know, it's they're not, it's not that they're de denying that um, there's been an increase since 73. But what they're proposing is that there really hasn't been an increase since 19, about 1993. So um, that is the point at which they stopped kind of adding numbers in. And, uh, but certainly, yes, one of the things that used to be considered evidence of a thriving population was, were females having triplets. Um, females being in excellent physical condition, nice and fat, and that those were kind of proxies for doing a, an actual population count. But now they like to dismiss those pieces of evidence as, you know, not worthy enough somehow. But and certainly that 08 paper by uh, Amst, or I think it was Harvey et al. that attacked you. Um, and, you know, we're saying that they're, they're based on their model, we probably see uh, uh, two thirds of the bears uh, die off as a result of the low summer ice. Um, you know, that certainly hasn't come to be. We, we have no evidence no. that the numbers are anywhere near that. And, and yet they continue on with their alarmist propaganda. Exactly, exactly. And they, you know, they, they will not admit that that particular model has failed instead they came up with a new model and um but really there is no place where we have seen the kind of catastrophic decline in numbers that that should be happening if what they're they're if what they're saying is true we should be seeing some dramatic decline in numbers there should be dead bears everywhere yeah or, but or we're just bears. not seeing it we're just not seeing it and then do we have concurrent examples to compare ecosystem productivity and, and the population of the, of the polar bears between regions, let's say, with uh, markedly diminished uh, sea ice versus those areas which may not have as much diminished sea ice? Well, we certainly do. And the, the area that keeps coming up again that they use as a, a primary example, of course, is Western Hudson Bay. Um, so they, they divide the Hudson Bay area up into kind of three parts. There's Fox Basin in the north, Western Hudson Bay, and then Southern Hudson Bay, which is kind of James Bay and that area. And they contend that um, numbers of bears in Western Hudson Bay and Southern Hudson Bay are declining, but only by a little bit. It's something like 11% or 17%, something like that. Um, but the decline in the ice that they're talking about, that they are blaming this population decline on, is the lowest of any region in the Arctic. Mm. So, you know, it's like they're, they're trying to say that there is a cause and effect relationship between the changes in the sea ice and the decline in numbers. But they don't actually have the proof for that. They're, uh, they're, they're making a connection. They're just saying that both of those things are happening and making a connection. Whereas 
in, for example, the Barents Sea, the decline in sea ice in the Barents Sea is five times what it is in Hudson Bay. And yet the polar bear numbers there are stable if, if you would believe their counts. Um, I think they're increasing, um, but they're also, the bears are in really good condition. And, and so if, if what they're saying is true, then the bears in the Barents Sea should be in trouble with this huge you know, drop in sea ice five times more than Western Hudson Bay, those bears should really be in trouble and they're not. So, you know, those are the kinds of comparison. They keep bringing up Western Hudson Bay and yet refuse to mention what's happening in the Barents Sea because it doesn't fit their narrative. And the same thing is true for the Chukchi Sea over on the other side. When, um, so that one is controlled, jointly controlled by the U.S. and Russia. And again, the, the sea ice there has declined more than in Western Hudson Bay. Um, but the bear numbers there have actually increased. And they're in, in good physical condition. And we have mothers having triplets. And they don't mention Chuck GC when they're telling their doomsday story. They just leave Chuck GC and uh, Barrett C out of their discussion. And that's one of the things that annoys me as a scientist. Another one of the inconvenient truths. Well, you know, it's uh, it's kind of the it's not, it's not a, an, an outright lie. It's it's leaving holes in your information, and it, it's not how you should behave. And it's it's why I try and fill in the gaps and let people know that there is this other part of the story that they're not hearing. Yes. And certainly, let's say if we look at the Hudson Bay area, um, I believe from reading your research that one of the prominent features of polar bear biology is this ability to relocate or move within their habitat. So if, if an area for whatever reason is is not ideal, they're going to move. And so some of this abundance, the differential in abundance could simply be that bears have moved to a different area, which have better conditions for their survival. Well, it could be for sure. And, and definitely one of, the, one of the most recent papers coming out about uh, Western Hudson Bay is they're finding the bears are coming off the ice much further north than they used to. And so that's, um, that's a change in their behavior that I would suggest is reflecting, reflecting their flexibility in what's going on on the landscape, because it's not only the sea ice that has changed. The, you know, other things have changed in Western Hudson Bay in the 1960s. There were hardly any caribou. There were hardly any um, waterfowl, geese and, and ducks. They had been overhunted as well. But they are all, all of those things are now protected to the point where you've got lots of caribou, all kinds of geese, so many geese, in fact, that they cause their own problems, millions of geese all kinds of um, ducks that nest on the shores of Western Hudson Bay. Well, some bears have learned that if you come off the ice in the nesting period, you've got all those eggs to eat. You've got all those fledgling birds to eat. And, you know, so there's all kinds of changes going on that have to be taken into account. Certainly. And, and you know, again, the, the, most animal species have a, a intelligence, an innate intelligence and they didn't survive 400,000 years of harsh conditions without having that ability to adapt and, and 
succeed in their environments. No, absolutely. No, yeah. So this discussion wouldn't be complete, of course, if we did not address the underlying motivation for the climate alarmist cult, which of course is total control of the human population. Would you agree with that statement and, and add anything to it? Well, you know, I've been thinking about those things. And um, when I wrote my last book, um, I, I really hadn't thought about it in those terms. My big concern was the impact that all of this was having on science as, as a field and, and how it was affecting me as a scientist trying to operate within that system. But I'm seeing now that it, it really is, um, there is a political aspect that um, it would be foolish not to take into account. And so I have definitely been paying more attention to that political aspect that is really pushing an agenda um, that seems to be totally resistant to acknowledging certain realities of fact. Yes, yes. And so there, there's an interesting commonality to note amongst my real climate science guests. Uh, none of them accept the official mainstream narrative for COVID-19, and I see that you're no different, and you've written in, de in some detail about the situation. And I, I'd like to take a moment here to explore the links between COVID-19, climate alarmism, the World Economic Forum, and the Great Reset. And so obviously, unless people have been completely asleep at the wheel, uh, they've probably heard about the, the, the supervillain or, or whatever you want to call him, uh, Klaus Schwab. And he seems to be working very hard to revamp society and, and to create a brave new world based on technocratic principles. What would you, what would you uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I've definitely been um, looking into that aspect of it. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm skeptical by nature. Um, it's really necessary to be skeptical if you're a scientist and all of the things that came about um, with COVID really when people talked about early on in the, in the pandemic, um, asking people if they were um, anxious. Well, I was anxious. I was so anxious. I couldn't write. I really had a, a hard time doing anything um, because I was concerned about what these people were up to. And because it didn't make scientific sense, why would we listen to anything that China said anyway? And um, that was my concern. Why are they doing this lockdown that no one's ever done before? Makes no sense in terms of dealing with an epidemic. Um, and so uh, I, I really did um, do some focusing on, on what was going on there. And I actually purchased um, Mr. Schwab's uh, book about the Great Reset because I thought, well, you know, I need to, I need to see what he says and, and not take anyone else's interpretation of it, but um, read it for myself. Um, and really, I mean, it wasn't as off the wall as I thought it would be. There's certain aspects of it that make logical sense. Um, but, but really I found that there were um, some basic concepts that he took as a given that simply weren't true. And if those things weren't true, then his, his whole plan just 
fell apart. So we can talk about those if you want. Yes, let's let's do that. Um, so uh, you stated that uh, you know you you read Mr. Schwab's book there, COVID nineteen: The Great Reset, and um, in one of your blog posts there, you identified three specific concepts um, which the Great Reset rests upon and are undeniably false. Uh, so let's let's have a look at these. Um, first, as you just mentioned here, there's a statement where he says that there's nothing new about confinement and lockdowns imposed upon much of the world. Uh, these have been a common practice for centuries. Well, and that's undeniably false because what he, and what he's trying to do is suggest that this Chinese style lockdown is what we've always done. But that's not true. What we've done is to quarantine sick people. A lockdown quarantines healthy people, quarantines everyone. A quarantine is the um, standard procedure for dealing with an epidemic of um, isolating sick people. A lockdown is not what we have traditionally done. So that's false. Yeah, and certainly a lockdown is more of a prison term, and uh, you know the the invention of asymptomatic. I mean, that's a it's a nonsensical term. I mean, we're it's asymptomatic as a healthy person. If you're not symptomatic, right. you don't have a you don't have a problem. So the, the next statement here that we'll analyze is that all previous pandemics were followed by a total reorganization of society. Well, and really that's false as well, because that hasn't happened since the um, bubonic plague, the Black Death. Um, epidemics in the 1300s. We certainly didn't see, for example, a widespread uh, societal reconstruction um, after the Spanish flu epidemics in, in um, 1919, 1918. So really that is, that is not the way that we have handled pandemics. Certainly. So that was false. And I think, more, and, and importantly, when you mentioned the bubonic plague, you know, one of the precursors to that occurring uh, was the the wolf minimum, uh, where people's caloric intake and their general health declined, and which was probably a precursor to the virulence of that the spread of that disease because people were malnourished and, and exactly, yeah. It's it's you know I think at the was it fifty percent or thirty percent of the population of Western Europe uh, perished. Yeah. Yeah, like you know, massive numbers. I mean, it was it wasn't yeah. a one it wasn't a one percent uh, disease like we had, uh, or you know, less than one percent with uh, with COVID. And uh, one of the other statements here that we'll take a look at is that future climate catastrophes, uh, but especially extreme weather, and inevitable, and unless extraordinary measures are taken to reduce emissions of CO two, is is this a factual statement? Well, and that that is false as well because there is actually no evidence of increases in extreme weather with increased amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. It just, you know, they keep hyping it, but when you actually look at the data, it's simply not true. And it is documented as being untrue. And so, I mean, one of the things is that bringing in the, the climate change issue um, brings us to one of the issues that I think is really important. And that is, um, the, this use of models. So they're using um, these climate models. Um, they're using climate models and models to um, predict polar bear survival. 
um, but they're all all the same. They are confounding, deliberately confusing um, a fact or an observation with an opinion or an assumption. And, and, and they're treating those as if they were equal. And so if they don't have enough information for their model, they have now concluded that it is perfectly okay to use an opinion rather than a fact, and then to treat the outcome as if it was a scientific result. And so what you're saying is models are not evidence. Exactly. Yeah. And that they did that with, um, with all the COVID stuff, with all the models of doing that. They didn't know how this was going to behave. They put in assumptions that turned out not to be true and, and you, but used it to deliberately frighten people. Yeah, that's, and, uh, you're probably referring there to the Neil Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and his whole crowd, you know, that, that he runs with. And, you know, there's been a number of those kinds of models, but that's where I see, um, that's where I see a lot of the parallels coming in. And I think that some um, people who are skeptical of climate scientists, science can see the same thing happening. They see that use of models um, that is happening with climate, climate science. And we know that that's trouble and that, that it is being used to deceive us and that it is a call to sit up and pay attention. Yes, yes. And certainly the manipulation of data and the misrepresentation of data from Pfizer and their mRNA vaccine is, is very similar to the, 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 the massaging of data of our temperature and, and many other aspects of our climate science. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, you know, we're, we're well primed for, for this kind of a campaign. Um, and, and what it tells us is that they have an agenda um, and that, that there's something that they want. There's something that they want from us and that we should be very wary of cooperating with whatever it is that they have in mind. Yes, yes. So since the, the core concepts of the Great Reset are false, uh, thus all the societal changes that it calls for can be dismissed as ideological drivel. Um, yet these ideas are dangerous because a large group of very rich and powerful people have bought into the plan. Uh, do you feel that the Great Reset Manifesto is a grandiose plan to circumvent democracy? Well, absolutely. I mean, it. I, I could see it in the book where um, the plan, part of the plan is to get actual, to get activists to be doing all these protests and to convince them so that governments can then have an excuse to say, oh, all these people are demanding this change. And therefore we have to make these changes where in, in fact, it's only a, a vocal minority of people probably paid for by them. Um, and that these are things they're definitely trying to um, use emergency powers, things that are, um, that the democratic process is meant to constrain, they've been using them. They took, they used, I think, the COVID um, situation to do a test run on how well it would work. Unfortunately, it worked much better than they ever, I'm sure, dreamed that it would have. And um, 
But really, I mean, I think ultimately it is going to fail. It's going to fail for the same reason that, you know, the climate stuff has been failing all along. Um, people are waking up to the fact that, that this stuff is going on and they're not going to be pushed around um, by this lot, no matter how much they really want it. Well, of course, it doesn't take much imagination or, or uh, extrapolation to imagine or realize that similar legislation regarding COVID might be enacted to deal with a perceived and false climate change emergency, uh, such as lockdowns or further restraints on our freedom or ability to travel uh, under the guise of saving the planet from CO2 emissions. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I think that's pretty apparent to most people that, you know, if they can do it for that, they could do it for whatever they choose. And I think particularly in Canada, we're, we're seeing that happening, that we're seeing um, Trudeau taking measures, continuing to keep measures in place when uh, the rest of the world has let it go. And he's the one, he's our example of what they're, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to hang on to power. And we have nowhere else to look except to Ottawa to see you know, what they're trying to do. You know, my fear, Dr. Crockford, is that it's the, the wool has been pulled so far and firmly in front of many people's eyes. And, and maybe this has actually now become a trauma situation where I think a lot of people are no longer thinking clearly about this subject, both COVID and climate alarmism. And, uh, you know, conversations like this and getting this information, I would think is very important to educate the average Canadian who has been fed lies from CBC and the rest of the establishment um, to, to actually do their own thinking and to come up with their own ideas and, and do their own lateral research. Because there is a lot of folks out there like yourself who are providing real scientific evidence and, and discourse uh, to counteract this narrative. Um, your thoughts there? Well, absolutely. And, and that is, uh, you know, and sometimes all we can do is, is try and change people's mind one, one person at a time. Um, I, I know people, I'm sure you do too, who get their own, only information from the CDC and they don't bother going looking for everything else, for any other information. Um, and so those are the people particularly that is hard to reach because they don't they don't even know that there's that other information out there and but i think that one of the real eye openers was the um truckers convoy you know like that was a huge thing and um a, an en enormous wake-up call to ottawa that the little people you know, the people who are working for a living that are being impacted by all of these rules and regulations are not going to stand for being pushed around like that. And, and the reaction from, from the government to, to the convoy, I think is really telling. You know, they were frightened of what was going to happen. But this was a grassroots um, uprising. And I know for me, I, I listened and watched these videos of the trucks rolling across Canada, and I was in tears. These, I am, it told me I am not alone. You know, there are all these thousands, millions of people across Canada who believe the same thing that I do, 
and they are blowing their horns for me. Well, and I, something that people may not realize, you know, is that there was all this kerfuffle about um, people donating funds and that it get, getting blocked and all of that. My understanding is none of that was even necessary. That right. as, as they went across Canada, people that they met along the way paid for their fuel, paid for their food, paid for their lodging, and everywhere, including in Ottawa. All of their needs were taken care of from the people who were there to support them. And that, that, just, that just gave me strength, I have to say. It really did. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to provide you some strength. My feelings on the subject were a little bit different. Um, I thought that in the beginning when that started, uh, I, I, I had some hope that it might bring about some wholesale change. Um, the fact that we had a hundred thousand and change, not just simply Canadians, you know, there was obviously people from abroad that contributed to those GoFundMe campaigns and so forth. I thought that that was a very small number. And when we did see the overreach of the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act, and then the subsequent marching of the mounted units through the crowd, and of course, what most people didn't see, and I had friends on the ground at the protest, uh, was that the, the security forces removed truckers from the cabs of their trucks uh, at loaded automatic weapon gunpoint with pepper spray and tear gas. And I think just the, the images of those mounted units running through the crowd should have been enough to have resulted in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians taking to the street and demanding that th this uh, government step down and that those were the most un-Canadian images that anyone has ever seen in this country. Uh, and the fact that that didn't happen was very disillusioning to me. And yeah. I, you know, I don't know what it's like out in Victoria, but, you know, I still see people walking around with masks on in the bright sunshine. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of younger people, a lot of 20-somethings seem to be completely captured by this narrative. And obviously, there's this, you know, probably when you and I were young, you know, the thing to do is to be a rebel. And now it seems like this virtue signaling conformity is, is that diametric opposite of, you know, as opposed to be how outlandish and, and um, you know, re resistant to the, to the narrative and to the, to the official way of doing things I can be as a youth. It's now how can I most uh, adhere and be the most obedient? It's a very bizarre world that we find ourselves in. It is. In. It is for sure. And I, and I totally, I totally understand your take on that. Um, but I do think that it was critically important that all of us across Canada saw what happened. And um, to, to know that we're not alone, I, I just think that ultimately it will make a difference. It didn't make an immediate difference, but you know, it, um, Trudeau overplayed. I mean, he overplayed his hand, he overreacted, and we're starting to see the repercussions of that now because you know he's refusing to let go. And, more people, I think, are starting to see the longer he holds on, the more people are becoming aware of how bizarre his behavior really is. Yes. yes so, so, you know, I think we have to take the small, um, the small um, wins that we can. And uh, it's, it certainly isn't over by long shot. And I, I know it's really, it's disconcerting to see so many people masked up because it really, it speaks to how badly they have been frightened, you know, yeah. that government deliberately frightened people. Yes. And, you know, they're using this um, manipulation, this, and 
behavioral manipulation to get people to do what they want. And, um, but more and more people are going to wake up eventually. I do believe it. We hope so. We hope so. And of course, the, the, the Senate has enacted its, its role to be that, um, I guess, ombudsman or, or ultimate authority in Canada where they did, you know, they were about to strike down the Emergency Measures Act and, and then uh, Mr. Castro there repealed it so he wouldn't have that on his record. And I understand that the Senate has just struck down the um, cell phone uh, investigation arbitrary investigation uh, bill as well. Right, yeah. So the, the, the Senate is serving the people of Canada much better than um, the, the elected government at this point, which is which is good to see. So the, the checks and balances are working and, and hopefully that continues along that pathway. Yeah, for sure. So our, our conversation today wouldn't be complete if we didn't address uh, David Attenborough and his complicity in the climate alarmist deception. Um, you know, he was certainly somebody that as a youth, I enjoyed watching his nature shows and so forth. And he really seems to have uh, turned a different uh, angle here. Um, what are your thoughts on, on this individual and, and, and what, what do you imagine his uh, agenda is here? Well, I mean, I, I'm like you, you know, I, I grew up um, watching or listening to his um, nature documentaries. Um, but when the Netflix um, documentary series called Our Planet came out in 2019. Um, in it, there was a sequence of walrus falling off a cliff to their deaths below, all in slow motion, really just horrific sequence. And the camera panning along the beach, showing hundreds of carcasses and Attenborough saying, these deaths were all caused by climate change. And, you know, it, it took me something like 15 minutes to Google around and fi- find out that in 2017, so two years before that, before the film aired, um, there had been an article in a Russian newspaper describing virtually exactly what he just said, what he showed on the, on the film, except that there were 20 polar bears actually chasing the walruses over the cliff. So in the, in the Netflix film, there was no mention of polar bears being the cause of these walrus spooked and going over the cliff. And so I, I did some investigation in it. And I tell you, it just, it was, uh, it really, it really got me going. Just the fact that um, they would deliberately sort of skew that um, what happened there. And as it turned out, um, there was not only, there was a crew from Netflix and there was also a crew from BBC. And at the film crew there in 2017 in Russia filming these walruses, well, Turns out six months later, BBC comes out with a documentary, also narrated by Attenborough, where he's showing the polar bears chasing the walrus over the cliff. Mm-hmm. And so he had to have known, you know, that, that those th- things were the same, that they were the same sequence. And it 
one of the things that I learned, so I, I ended up writing a book about it and laying it all out, but it turned out that there was a meeting of the World Economic Forum in January of 2019, so three months, four months before the um, Netflix uh, film actually premiered, um, where a, a, a special premiere of, of it was shown that showed the walruses falling off the cliff to these highly influential um, rich elites at the WEF. Um, and that to me was showing that Attenborough was really trying, he was trying to impress, use that film footage to um, really impress on these elites that climate change was to blame, even though he knew it was polar bears because he wanted this result. He was, they were working towards um, this, this climate meeting that was coming up um, in 2000 and it ended up not being until last year, 2021, but they were laying the groundwork for trying to and convince as many of these influential, um, these rich and, and politically influential people as they could before that climate meeting. And Attenborough was part of it. In all, he, he was involved with 10 documentaries in a three-year period, all pushing this climate change doom scenario. Um, and, and, so, and that was a real eye-opener to me, that, that he would work that hard. And he clearly was behind um, the, the goals of the World Economic Forum. Um, and all I could say is that ultimately, the, what they'd hoped for at this climate meeting last year didn't come to pass, it failed. And they didn't get the result they wanted because they had an unrealistic idea of what was going on. They, caught, they thought they had everything figured out and they didn't. And I really feel that this, the whole thing is going to fail for the same reason, that it, they, they really think they've got a handle on all the moving parts, but they don't. Interesting, interesting. And certainly his most recent uh, film, which I forget the name of it, it was sort of his legacy piece. Uh, I, again, I, I watched that with great interest as having a, a childhood fan. And right. Much of the narration was just utter drivel. And, uh, you know, it's it, it very much that alarmist uh, messaging. And it's interesting. I had a, a friend over for, for dinner last weekend and his two little girls, eight and 11, and uh, their mother was saying that, you know, they're looking to take them out of school because they're just continuously bombarded with this doomsday messaging and uh, they don't want their children subjected to it anymore. Yeah, um, no, exactly. And, and Attenborough is a big part of that. And really, it, and, and a big part of that started with the polar bears. And, you know, from what I can see, um, uh, Greta, um, what's her last name? Thunberg. Thunberg, yeah. That she, she stated in an interview that he, he was instrumental in her thinking. And that, you know, she, she remembered, she says she remembered seeing starving polar bears but in fact, I couldn't even I couldn't find anything um, that she would have watched that had him talking and showing starving polar bears. What he did was showed fat, healthy polar bears and talked about starving polar bears. But um, again, he he set her up. She was only eight years old at the time. 
And, and that's where it led to her being so um, distraught that she was unable to eat. She, she dropped out of school, you know, and that's happening to a lot of other kids as well. You know, it's, it's really a horrific thing to do. I mean, and that's part of his legacy as well. Yes, absolutely. So how did we arrive at this conjuncture and what must we do to turn this around? Well, I don't know. I think that we really have to remind people um, about history. You know, that, that history is really important. To, to, if somebody says, this, this is happening now, that you should be asking yourself, well, what happened 50 years ago? What happened 100 years ago? What happened 1,000 years ago? Because, you know, there is a history to a lot of these things that is being left out. And, and people can, um, should be asking those questions and, and go looking for those answers. And I think the other part of it is to keep reminding people that model outputs are not facts. And that, you know, these, this modeling that has become such a huge part of science these days is really, is corrupting it. Yeah. And, and that, you know, taking this um, modeling at face value um, is, is really detrimental. And that people, whenever they see that a model is involved, that should be a red flag for them to, to say what's going on here. Because um, if they're using a model, chances are there's something stinky in the background. Well, and as the uh, great Willie Soon says about models, garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. But, you yeah. know, at, at, and that's, that's easy enough to, to say, but um, I think the critical thing that I've, that I've come across is that what it's doing is it's equating opinions with facts. And um, that that is important. I mean, it used to be that if there wasn't enough facts to come to a conclusion about something, you went and looked for more. You know, you went and looked for more observations, looked for more facts. But now what they've done is decided, well, we don't need no stinking facts. We just need some assumptions. We need some opinions and that those can justifiably stand in for facts in this model. And, and that's where the corruption is coming from. And we shouldn't allow that to happen. And, and whenever people are hearing that models are in use, they should know that there are assumptions in that model that are posing as facts and that they should not believe the outcome. Very well said, very well said. And, and of course, that really isn't science. Exactly, exactly. Models were meant to be a useful tool to say, gee, what would happen if we did this? What would happen if this? As a way to explore what kind of information, what kind of additional information you needed to collect. That's what it was really, I think, meant for. Now it's being used instead of looking for more information. Yes, yes. And of course, the predictive capability or the predictive record of those models is essentially zero. And so that to me, that tells me that the understanding of the system which they're trying to model is also approaching zero. Yes. And, and if we go back to the polar bear um, example, that the model 
that Stephen Amstrup used in 2007 was based on his assumption that summer sea ice was essential for the survival of polar bears. Well, when it, was when it turned out that was wrong, then his model failed. So it was not surprising that his model failed because his assumption was wrong, but he's not willing to admit that his assumption was wrong. And that's, and that's where also where, you know, a good scientist should be willing to admit. I assumed that that was the case, but I was wrong. Yes, yes. And of course, that's the iterative process of, of science to continuously distill and refine our knowledge base and our understanding. Absolutely, absolutely. That's so where the fun is in all of it. You know, I mean, that's the fun of science. And you wouldn't get anywhere if, if, you, if you couldn't say, oh, gee, that didn't work. Let's try something else. That's right. Anyway, that's right. Yeah. Well, th this has been an absolutely uh, illuminating conversation, Dr. Crockford. I thank you for it. Um, give us an idea what some of the uh, research areas are that you plan to pursue here in the coming in the coming months and years. Well, as I said, I've uh, I've got a book in progress on polar bear evolution, and I think that a lot of people will enjoy that. I certainly get a lot of questions on that topic, um, and. I really hope to um, try my hand at another novel. So I've written two novels so far, and I've found that I actually like writing those more than I thought I would. Yeah. So Excellent. that's Excellent. kind of fun. Super. Uh, and then how can listeners learn more about you and your work? Where would I direct them? Um, they can, all of the, at my blo uh, blog, which is polarbearscience.com, um, they'll find um, links to buying all of my books. Um, there's a contact me page. Um, that So if they want to send me a message to ask me a question, they can do it through there. Um, and so that's really the easiest way to, to find out what I'm doing and to get in touch with me if they have a question to ask. Okay. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, that's, it's been a real pleasure. Let's keep in touch. And as your uh, research unfolds, uh, let's look to reconvene here in the future and uh, share some more of your knowledge with the listeners. Absolutely. That was been fun. Fantastic, ma'am. Thank you so much. You have a great okay. evening. Good night. All right. Bye-bye.